Hi, Journey. How y'all doing? Want to know something about me? Uh, my favorite part of that video is when it's over. <laughs> I hate myself on screen. I hate hearing my own voice. I don't know how you put up with it, actually. I, I don't know. If you're a guest maybe with us for the very first time, we're particularly delighted to be with you today. We've been praying that this time would be life-changing. We're very excited to have every single one of you here today. Just a couple of things about that Not Without You initiative. First, you should have gotten a packet in the mail this week. If you didn't, there might be a few things going on. One, you might need to go to your mailbox. It might be in there. It would have hit uh, likely on Friday or so. Uh, If it's not in there, you might be on our mailing list. We just might have the wrong data. Or we could have screwed up and you might not even be on our mailing list and you think you are, and so that's our bad. We're very sorry if that's the case. So if you need to update your data, please use those cards that are in the chair pockets in front of you, uh, and we'll set that right, hand that card to an usher on the way out today, if you would. Uh, Or, you know, maybe you're not on there at all, and so you're starting brand new and fresh, and so... And then if you didn't get one of those packets, there's a whole bunch of them out in the lobby at that Not Without You sort of thing out there, the big banner. And so just grab one because we're not going to resend them. There's a whole bunch of them out there. Just grab one on your way out if you would. Tear it open, please, and pay special note, if you will, to this sheet. It's a perforated four, one, two, three, four. These are the prayer prompters I talked to you about last weekend. And I'm just going to ask you, please, to get to praying like you've never prayed before on this stuff. Tear this one off, the bottom one, and start praying on that one this week if you would, and then just move up week by week by week, real self-explanatory, and get to praying if you would. And then, right after this, right after we're done in here, we're hosting what's called a you gathering, a not without you, you gathering. We're bringing in a bunch of food, and it's free food, and we'd invite you just to stay right after this experience, eat that free food, enjoy the Journey Church family. Uh, I have about a 25-minute or so presentation where I'll take your questions immediately following that. It'll be roughly an hour long, the whole deal, from the time you get your food to the time that you would be leaving, and that'll be the last session of those that we have. We invite you to stay if you're so inclined. As we move into the message uh, piece of our experience today, we're going to look at one of the most famous miracles of Jesus Christ, Some material that Rick Warren and Andy Stanley wrote helped resource my study and my prep this week. And the miracle we're going to investigate together today is so famous, as a matter of fact, it's the only miracle that Jesus Christ did that's recorded four different times throughout the sacred text, the Bible. We see it in the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's most commonly referred to as the miracle of feeding the 5,000, but really there was way more than just 5,000 people there. The Bible says very clearly that there were 5,000 men there, but sociologically speaking, wherever and whenever you have 5,000 men, you've probably got at least 5,000 women, probably another 10,000 or so kids. And on this quite incredible day, Jesus takes one, lots of you know the story, Jesus takes one little boy's lunch and he was able to feed all of those people with that one little boy's lunch that's likely between 15 and 20,000 people. And it's kind of like a whoa kind of story, isn't it? It's a whoa kind of story. And it's the most famous miracle because everybody saw it happen. You can just imagine how the news would have traveled. There's 15 or 20,000 live observers and then they tell one person and it just multiplies and multiplies. And then next thing you know, this thing is very, very widely known. And here's what we got to keep in view as we sort of tear into this text, is that Jesus never ever did a miracle just to show off. He wasn't just showing off. Rather, he always did miracles to teach principles. This is an illustration of something that he's trying to instill into his disciples and even us. 
And in this particular miracle, we have the story of what it takes to set the table for a miracle in your own life. How do you, me, we, all of us, how do we prepare for a miracle today? And what's true is that someday we're going to need a miracle. And you might need one even this coming week. Yours might be a need for a financial miracle. It might be a health miracle. It might be a relational miracle with your kids, husband, wife, parents, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it is. And Jesus teaches throughout this story at least four essentials to setting the stage for God's miracles in our lives. You can follow along in your Bible, Mark chapter 6, if you'd like, or the verses will also be on the screen. Uh, By the way, did you notice that there's, uh, as you're coming into the auditorium, there's a couple of new shelves there, and we put some Bibles on those shelves for you. On the way in, we invite you, if you want to have a Bible on your lap, you can grab one, you can follow along. We'd ask that you would please return those Bibles on your way out. If you need a Bible of your own to, like, take home and read and keep, uh, do not take those, please. That would be called stealing. We have some other Bibles for you if you want one to take home. Just ask somebody out in the lobby and they'll help you get one of those. Those blue ones at those shelves are like, they're like auditorium Bibles. They have those little locators on them so we know wherever they go and they beep and such if you steal one. Not really. That's called lying. (laughs) Regardless of all of that, let's get to the Bible, shall we? Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 30. Here's what it says. The apostles returned to Jesus from their ministry tour and told him all they had done and taught. Then Jesus said, let's go off by ourselves to a quiet place and rest a while. And you kind of go like, fat chance, right? He said this because there were so many people coming and going that Jesus and his apostles, they didn't even have time to eat. They're hungry themselves. So they left by boat for a quiet place where they could be alone. But many people recognized them, saw them leaving, and people from many towns ran ahead along the shore and got there ahead of them. Jesus saw the huge crowd as he stepped from the boat, and he had compassion on them. He wasn't ticked off. He wasn't like, yeah, so much for our R&R time. He just had compassion on them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Late in the afternoon, his disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place. It's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to nearby farms and villages and buy something to eat. But Jesus said, you feed them. With what? They asked. We'd have to work for months to earn enough money to buy food for all these people. And the disciples and Jesus, what they have on their hands is quite a significant problem don't they? We have this very large, very hungry crowd. They've been out in the middle of the desert all day to hear Jesus teach. The day wears on and wears on. There's not a McDonald's in sight. Actually, there's nothing in sight. And Jesus and his disciples, they're fit to be tied, aren't they? And we can learn from these four things as we seek to set the stage for God's miracles in our lives. They come right out of what Jesus and his and his disciples did. Number one, we admit that we have a need. That's where it all starts. We admit that we have a need. We must always start here. If any of us ever wants God to show up and work in our lives, we've got to admit it. God, I need help. Now, some of us sitting here today, we've never even said those words before, so I want us to try to say them together aloud. Ready? God, I need your help. Wow. For a whole bunch of us, that was wicked difficult to say. I even saw some of you skip out on saying it. That's how hard it is for some of us to say, because not very many of us like to admit our problems, do we? We'd rather hide them, cover them up, blame other people, pretend they don't exist. 
But the first principle in this narrative is that God does not work in our lives until we ask him to. Think about your own salvation even. He doesn't even save us until we ask him to save us. Matthew 7, 7 and 8 says this. Keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. There's over 20 different occasions throughout the New Testament where we're commanded to ask. So when we have a need, we come to Jesus Christ and we say, God, I have a need in my life. God, I need you big time. Because you see, God's not just going to come busting through your front door trying to help until we admit that we actually need help. And we don't ask God for help too often because we're real, real busy, aren't we, carrying out three self-defeating, self-destructive behaviors instead of asking God for help. What do we do when we have problems most frequently? Well, we do one of three things. Sometimes we do all of them. We procrastinate, we pass the buck, or we worry, don't we? All three of those self-defeating, self-destructive behaviors, we see them in view in the story. And you know who did them? The disciples did them. These aren't like uber-Christians. These are like guys who are growing in faith. We see the disciples, first of all, they procrastinate, don't they? They tried to put off dealing with this very large problem. They delayed it. The Bible tells us, late in the afternoon, late in the afternoon. Now, it does not take any genius to figure out that all those people are going to get hungry at some point. They're out there in the middle of the desert. It'd be kind of like being out north of Three Forks or something. There's no place to eat, no fast food chains, no Perkins. What do they think is going to happen? They just put it off and put it off and put it off. And we try to do this with our problems. We delay, we procrastinate, we pretend they don't exist, we try to look the other way. But the truth is, procrastination only makes a problem worse doesn't it? Put off your homework until the last minute. How's that go? Never goes well, does it? Put off doing your taxes until the last minute. How's that go? It never goes good. You don't ever have that form from the mortgage company. Like, where is all that stuff? Don't put it off until the last minute. It goes badly. How many times have you heard a story about someone who didn't feel very good physically? Or they found a weird growth somewhere on their body and they put it off and put it off and put it off going to the doctor and it turned out to be a deadly delay. Procrastination never solves any problems. Instead, it only makes it worse. The second thing we often do is we pass the buck, don't we? We try to blame other people. We say, it's not my fault, it's their fault. Notice what the disciples do. They they do it right here. They say, send the crowds away. In other words, get them out of sight, They're out of mind. They're not our problem. This is their problem. The disciples, they're basically saying, Jesus, look, first of all, we didn't even invite all these people out here to come see you. It isn't our responsibility to feed them. They should have planned ahead. It's their problem. They're hungry. Just tell them to get out of here, get lost. Tell them to run off into the countryside somewhere, find a store, find a farm, and get themselves some food, some dinner, some whatever. We didn't, which, by the way, that would have been a serious problem to send 15 or 20,000 people out into nowhere to try to find some food. The first farm they came to would not have had enough food for 15 to 20,000 people to feed them. It just wouldn't have. It would have been a deal. The disciples try to pass the buck, blame them. And we do that. We want to pass it on and say, it's not my fault, it's society's fault, it's the environment's fault, it's my parents' fault for the way they toilet trained me when I was a little kid, and ever since then I've been a total mess. We try to blame other things, other people. 
We don't want to own our own stuff. We try to pass the buck instead. And the third thing that we very often do is we worry about our problems, don't we? Someone said that if we prayed about our problems as much as we worried about them, we have a whole lot less to worry about. We fret and we stew and we get anxious and we get stressed out and we bite our nails. And 99% of the things that we worry about, they never even happen. They don't even come to pass. And the disciples did it. They, they worried big time. They said, Jesus, just imagine how much this is going to cost. And they ran a little cost analysis, flopped open their laptop and ran a little Excel spreadsheet. And the results of that analysis sent their worry into like hyperdrive. Just imagine Peter and some of the other guys saying, Jesus, how are we going to do? We can't even feed 5,000 people, let alone 15 or 20,000 people. How in the world would we transport the food out here? How in the world would we keep the food warm? How in the world are we going to get the mess cleaned up? Who in the world is going to pay for the liability insurance? Somebody always chimes in with that one, right? Their minds go into overdrive, worrying and fretting. And you know what the disciples forgot? They forgot who was with them, who was standing right there. It's Jesus Christ, the Son of God himself. He's standing right there. It's kind of like a news flash moment. The one who can turn stones into bread. And he's standing right there. And the disciples are like, send them off to the KFC. They can find their own food. And we do that. We have a problem. And we forget that God is right here with us. And we get to worrying and fretting and chewing on our nails when he said over and over and over again, I'll help you if you'll just come to me. Just come to me. And coming to him starts with admitting that I have a need. Admitting that I have a need. Number two, we assess what we already have. The second step in laying the groundwork for God to show up and do a miracle, we assess what we have to work with. We do a little realistic analysis of our resources and we ask ourselves, what have I got? How am I using it? How am I leveraging it? Mark 6, 38, Jesus asked the disciples, how much bread do you have? And they're like emptying their pockets and stuff and they're like, well, we... Well, he says, go, go find out how much there is. How much do you have? And so they left and then they came back and reported. We have five loaves of bread and two fish. Not a stellar report. Five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, literally, scholars suggest that those loaves of bread, they're tiny little muffins, tiny little barley muffins. We're not talking about the Costco, like two pound muffins. You know the one, not that kind of muffin. These are little tiny barley muffins. Like we hear loaves of bread and we're thinking uh, like loaves of Costco French bread that are like this long, like big old bulk sized loaves. Uh -uh. Tiny little muffins. And the fish, scholars suggest that these are likely a couple of dried sardines. Sick. Dried sardines. And Jesus sends the disciples out to find out, all right, what's out there? What do you have? And that's interesting because this is, remember, God, right? He could have just rained manna right out of heaven. He'd done that a time or two before. Why would he say, go see what you've already got? It's because whenever we're laying the groundwork for a miracle, you assess what you have to work with to start with. God always starts with what we've got. You take the energy that you've got and you give it to him. You take the time that you've got and you give it to him. You take the money that you've got and you give it to him. You take the relationship, the talent, the whatever, and you say, God, here it is. Here's what I got. 
Notice Mark 6.37. It is not Luke. It is Mark. My bad, bad proof reading day. Sorry. Mark 6.37. Jesus said, you feed them. You feed them. How would you like to be one of those disciples? Poor guys. And you have Jesus say that to you. And you're standing there going, Lord, look, look, like 15 to 20,000 people, they're, they're all hungry. And Jesus just looks at you and says, you take care of the problem. It's yours. You take care of it. And how the disciples respond, they push back big time. Lord, this is impossible. This is humanly impossible. It's financially impossible. It is practically impossible. We cannot do this. And how many times in your life has God asked you to do something impossible? If you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for any length of time at all, I guarantee that he's asked you to do something impossible, hasn't he? He has. He asked me and Dana about six years ago to start a church in Bozeman. Like, what? I'm not a pastor of a church. I'm a youth pastor. You're kidding. That's not possible, God. And you know what he said? Let me show you. Let me show you. And so a year into Journey's life, it was 2006, we're a church of five or 600 people, and God asked us at that point to start raising money to buy the land that we would need to eventually put our community center and ministry campus on, and we needed $3 million. And we're going, that's impossible. And we actually, we hired these consultants to help us with that process, and they literally would not even sign off on trying to help us raise that money. They took one look at who was around Journey Church, and they're like, uh-uh, don't do it, uh-uh, you're going to fail, you're going to fall flat on your face, do not do it. Turns out the deal with consultants is if you pay them enough money, they'll do anything, right? That's how it works with consultants, and so we talked them into it, and God said through that process, let me show you. And in the past four years, $3.57 million has been given toward that effort. We said that's impossible. $3.57 million has been given toward that effort. And as we stand here today, now it's time to pay down our mortgage. It's time to expand this campus to better serve our community, better serve the families of Journey. And the price tag is $3.1 million. And some some of us sit here today and we're saying, that's impossible. Haven't you read the news Haven't you heard about the economy? Haven't you heard about the people around Journey who are unemployed and underemployed? That's $3.1 million. It's impossible. Why in the world does God ask us over and over and over again to do things that seem absolutely impossible? Why? It's because God loves to ask his children to do the impossible because he wants to stretch our faith in him. He wants to test us. He wants to show us that he and he alone is absolutely trustworthy. It's not us, it's him. And in the Gospel of John in the Bible, the same narrative of this feeding miracle, we see it repeated there. Uh, It is not John 5, it's actually John 6, another typo, my bad. John 6, verses 5 and 6. Turning to Philip, he asked, this is Jesus, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? And then there's sort of this little parenthetical insight into what was going on there. He, that's Jesus, was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. He already knew what he was going to do. Jesus was not sweating this problem. He'd seen the need long before the disciples did. He already had a plan hatched. He obviously knew all these people are going to get hungry. He knew what he was going to do. But he wanted to test his disciples by saying, look guys, you do it. You do it. He asked them to do the impossible. 
Now, in the next week or in the next weeks, I almost assure you that you're going to have problems come up in your life that will absolutely strike you out of nowhere. Some of you are going to get a phone call in the middle of the night that sets your heart to racing, your adrenaline to pumping. When you hear that there's been some kind of accident, you hear that a loved one's been taken to the hospital, you hear that a loved one perhaps has even passed away. Perhaps over the course of the next few weeks, you're going to get called into the office at work. Your boss is going to call you into his or her office and tell you, look, you've been downsized. Maybe you'll get even the call from the school, the call that starts with, we've got a problem over here with your kid, and on and on and on, it's going to happen, isn't it? And you do not know when or where these problems are going to come up. That's part of what makes them a problem. They surprise you. They come out of nowhere. But get this. Rest in this. God knows the answer before you even know the problem. God knows the answer before you even know the problem. He is not surprised by any problem because he sees all the way from the beginning to the end. He knows every problem you're going to face for the rest of your life. He is not shocked. He is not surprised. He is not blown away by it. His jaw never drops. And on those days when ours does, we come to him and we say, God, you knew this was coming. And so you, knew the an- you know the answer even before I knew that there was a problem. We come to him and we admit we have a need and we look at what we have to work with, a little talent, a little ability, a little money, a little time, a little whatever it is. And then number three, I give God then whatever it is that I have. We give it to him. We give God whatever we have. It's the third step in preparing for a miracle. You give God whatever you have. In the book of John, it tells us that Andrew, who's one of the disciples, he found a little boy out in the crowd who brought a sack lunch to Jesus, a little speaking engagement. It wasn't much. Five little barley muffins, a couple of fish, these dried sardines. I'm sure that out in that crowd of fifteen to 20,000 people, somebody else had brought a bigger and better meal. Right? You can almost rest assured of it. But this little boy this day, he got to be the hero. Surely somebody out there in that crowd had wine and goat cheese in their lunch sack. Right? But this little boy, he gets to be the hero. Not because he had the biggest meal or the best meal, but why? Because he gave his lunch to God. He gave his lunch to God. He gave what he had to Jesus. And he said, this, this is all I've got. It's kind of gross. You can have it. A couple of fish, dried sardines, five little muffins. Take them. And so they do. And notice in Mark 6, 41, Jesus took the five loaves and two fish, looked up toward heaven and blessed them, And breaking the loaves into pieces, he kept giving the bread to the disciples so they could distribute it to the people. He also divided the fish for everyone to share. It's like the darn coolest thing you've ever seen in your whole life. It's another whoa kind of moment. We have absolutely no idea how Jesus did that. Apparently, he's breaking the bread. It just keeps multiplying and multiplying. And A few weeks ago, our friend Shane Claiborne was here, and he talked just a little bit about this miracle. And, and he said, you know, Jesus grabs the, the fish and the loaves, and he, and he does like a little God stuff. And that's about all we can say, isn't it? There's a little God stuff there. And he break off a piece, and there was more. And he just kept doing it, and it multiplied, and everybody could see it. Their eyes, you can imagine, would have been fixated on what was going on up front with the bread and fish deal. Whoa. God uses whatever it is that we give him. God loves to use ordinary things to do extraordinary things. God loves to use ordinary people like all of us to accomplish extraordinary tasks. 
And that kid, he was something else. He gave his lunch willingly, he gave it cheerfully, and he gave it immediately. He volunteered his lunch. He said, here, take mine. He was probably, as a matter of fact, really bummed that his mom made him this barley muffin and dried sardine lunch. He was hoping for peanut butter and jelly. Whatever his reason was, though, he just gave it real willingly. He gave it cheerfully. He didn't give it grudgingly. He didn't complain. He didn't resent. He didn't worry. He never said, wait a minute. I got to think about what I'm going to eat. What am I going to eat if I give my lunch to you? No, he just said, here, sure, if you need this, take it. And he did it immediately. He didn't hesitate. He had no idea what was going to happen with his lunch. Oh, you need this? Here you go. Here it is. It was immediate. And that's the kind of giving that sparks miracles, really. And over the course of the next couple of weeks, as we talk more about how and what we're going to give to this Not Without You initiative, please never, ever forget that God does not want your money if you give it grudgingly. He does not want your money if you give it grudgingly. He does not want your time if you give it grudgingly. He doesn't want your talent if you give it grudgingly. Why? Because he does not need it, frankly. He does not need it. What he really wants is what your money and your time and your talent represents, which is what? It's your heart, isn't it? Bear this in mind in these days. God is way more interested in the attitude of your giving than he is in the amount of your giving. And if and when you're ever pressured into giving or pressured into serving or pressured into using some talent and you feel grudgingly about it, God says, look, please do not bother. I don't need your money. I don't need your time. What I really want is your heart. What I really want is your life. What I really want is all of you. That's why the Bible says in Matthew 6, 21, wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. If you can't give or you can't serve or you can't use some talent of yours without the right attitude, God says, just forget it. Don't bother. I I don't want it. And do you know who the most miserable people in the world are? They're the people who feel guilty when they're not generous and don't give and then resent it every time they do. Either way, they're miserable. Have you ever noticed that the root word of miserable is the word miser? That is not an accident. When we hold on to things and when we're not generous with our life and our time and our talents and our money, when we're miserly, then what are we going to be? We're going to be miserable. The more generous we are with our money, with our time, with our life, with our talent, with our encouragement, the more God blesses it. And finally, point number four. First, we admit that we have a need. We assess what we have to work with. I give what I have to God. And number four, I expect him then to multiply it. I expect him to multiply it. Whatever we give him, we expect him to multiply. Look at what happened, Mark 6, 42. This little boy brings his lunch, has a couple of fish, five little muffins, and the Bible says, check this out, they all ate as much as they wanted. It wasn't like they all just got a little bite. They all ate as much as they wanted. They were full. They were satisfied. If you don't have enough time in your life, for example, have you ever considered it might be because you're not giving any of your time to God? Have you thought about that? If you're a person who consistently lacks enough money to make it to the end of the month, have you ever considered it might be because you're not giving any of it to God? If you're always in a relational ditch with other people, have you ever considered that it's because 
You're not giving your relationships to God because whatever it is that we give totally and completely to God, he multiplies it, he blesses it. Mark 6, 43, and afterward, the disciples picked up 12 baskets of leftover bread and fish. Leftovers, 12 baskets full. And can you imagine little Johnny who gave his lunch and he goes home with 12 baskets full of leftovers and his mom's going like, Johnny, you did what? Where did all this come from? And you did what? And Jesus did, huh? What? Johnny, what were you smoking out at the Jesus concert anyway? You'd say the same thing, right? You hear your kid come home and you say, and he says to you, mom, dad, I took my disgusting barley muffin and dried sardine lunch. By the way, mom, I want peanut butter and jelly next time. And I just gave it to Jesus and he did this thing. He like prayed over it and then he just starts breaking pieces off and pretty soon he feeds 20,000 people with my little lunch and mom's standing there like, what? How in the world? God multiplied what he gave. God makes sure of that. Because you see, God has established a principle that's actually hardwired into the universe and it's called sowing and reaping. Galatians 6, 7, I did not make this up. This is God's deal. Galatians 6, 7, you will always harvest what you plant. You will always harvest what you plant. If you give away criticism, you're going to get back what? Criticism. If you give away encouragement, you're going to get back encouragement. If you give away your time to serve people, to serve God's kingdom, You're going to find that you have more time than you would have had if you tried to save all your time selfishly for you. It's the same with anything. Money, reputation, whatever it is. God's actually hardwired the universe to work this way. The principle of sowing and reaping. Why? Because God wants to teach us to become generous. God wants to teach us to become givers. And none of us can become like God unless we learn how to be generous. We talked about it last weekend, John three sixteen. For God loved the world so much that what? That he gave. He gave. He didn't just give a little something. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And he wants us to give. He wants us to learn to be like him. And you, every single time, you will reap back more than you sow. If you criticize other people, it's coming right back at you, but it'll be more, I promise. If you judge other people, it's coming right back at you, but it'll be more, I promise. If you take one little kernel of corn and you go out here behind this building and you plant it in the ground, are you just going to get one little kernel back out of the ground? Uh Uh-uh. You're going to get a whole stalk of corn with several ears of corn on that stalk. Those ears of corn will have several thousand kernels on them. We always get back more than we put in, and that works to the positive and to the negative. It's just one of the laws of the universe, this principle of sowing and reaping, and it's God's law. It's God's principle. Look at Mark 10, 27. Everything is possible with God. Everything is possible with God. God loves to do miracles through people. God certainly could have just rained down bread on those people. He could have turned a bunch of stones into bread. He could have even, for crying out loud, waved his hand and a whole line of fast food franchises just popped up out of nowhere out there in the desert that day. He could have done any kind of thing that he wanted to, but instead he worked through people. He worked through a boy who gave his lunch. He worked through his disciples who passed it out. And check this out. While we're often waiting for God to do something for us, God is waiting to do it and wanting to do it through 
us. Well, we're waiting for God to do something miraculous for our marriage. He actually wants to do it through our marriage. While we're waiting for God to do something miraculous for me, he actually wants to do it through me. And journey, this story of feeding thousands of people, I think, is quite appropriate for our church. We live in a valley of about 90,000 spiritually hungry people. And every single week, a whole bunch of them show up for something that's going on on this campus. And they're saying, feed me, please, feed me spiritually. And you know what God's saying to us, to you and to me and to this family? He's saying, Journey, you feed them. And in our humanness, we look at them and we're going, but God, how in the world can we possibly feed all these spiritually hungry people in this valley? We're just one church with one little entrance, one little building. How in the world, God, can we possibly ever do that? We need a miracle, don't we, Journey? We need a miracle. And these are fantastically exciting days. We're going to be growing spiritually like never before. We're going to be stretched in our faith like never before. And I want to get, in closing, I want to give you four things if you're a part of the Journey Church family that you need to expect over the course of the next few weeks. Number one, you can expect to see some miracles. You can actually expect to see some miracles. And I'm not just talking about some like kind of, sort of miracles. I'm talking about real deal, honest to God miracles. Some of you are going to get job promotions that sort of sweep in out of nowhere. Some of you, your marriage right now is in such a ditch and over the course of the next few weeks, God's going to make it new and it will be almost unimaginable to you. Some of you might experience even some physical healing over the course of the next few weeks. Some of you are going to have windfall profits sort of fall out of the sky and come your way, unexpected income and so. Get ready to see some miracles. I got a note already from a family this past week and it said, you know, for the first time in 15 years, almost to the day they wrote, My husband got put on a full-time salary. For the past whole bunch of years, he's been on three-quarter salary or less. And they wrote, we know that God's timing was no accident as we think about what we can give to the Not Without You initiative. This was no coincidence, they're saying. Fantastic, miraculous God stuff. Get ready to see some miracles in your own life. Number two, you can expect to grow spiritually over the course of these weeks. And in all candor, If you're not interested in spiritual growth or being challenged or pressing in hard in your relationship with Jesus Christ, you might want to find another church for the next few weeks. If you're not up for being challenged, if you're not up for being stretched, if you're not up for growing deeper with God, you might just want to find another church because we're not going to pull any punches in the next few weeks. Because you see, we're very, very interested at the end of the day in all of us becoming more spiritually mature. Number three, and this one's wicked, You can expect to be hassled by Satan, which it wasn't true, but it is. You can count on it. Because whenever God's people get real serious about growing spiritually, taking new ground for the kingdom of God like we are, Satan does not like that. He doesn't want Journey Church to succeed. He doesn't want Journey Church to thrive. He doesn't want us to grow. He doesn't want any of us to be a part of God's blessings, certainly. And I guarantee that in the coming weeks, Satan's going to bring everything he's got to distract you. You're going to have car trouble and it's going to lead to unexpected mechanics bills. Some of you might get laid off. Some of you might have problems in your marriage that just come out of nowhere. Some of you might even get physically sick. Satan's going to throw all kinds of things your way to rob you from the blessings of God and to distract you. Don't let it happen, church. Don't let it happen. In the words of one great pastor, just say, Satan, you go to hell. He's the only one you can say that to, by the way. 
Tell him where to go. Number four, you can expect to experience joy. This is a blast journey. And joy always abounds when people give and when people get real serious about ordering their life and priorities around God's life and priorities. So many amazing God things are happening around the life of your church. God's at work. God's on the move. And it is a blast to be a part of it. I'm going to ask you to take your things and set them aside, if you would, please. And I'm just going to ask you to go to prayer. Just get quiet and still before the Lord. And as you're going to prayer, would you just pray, God, would you please help me really grow in these days? God, would you please help me take new ground for you and for your kingdom in these days? God, would you please use me today? Please, God. while you're still praying maybe you're a person who's here today and you know that you don't have your own personal relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ what if this is your day to cross the line of faith in him what if this is your day to ask him to be your savior your boss your life manager what if this is your day why not Why not? And maybe you're asking, well, how in the world do you do that? It starts very simply by confessing to God. God, I know I'm a sinner. I know, God, that everything in my life has really been moving away from you, not toward you. And so, God, I ask you to please forgive me for all my sin. Forgive me for all my sin. And the list is long. Because Jesus, I want to know you more than I want anything else. And I'm asking you, Jesus, to please forgive me. Please change me. Please save me. And as you pray to Jesus, an amazing thing happens too, really. He not only forgives your sins, but in the same instant, he fills you with his Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God resident in you. And if you're a person today who's saying, yeah, I want and I need to experience the love of God. I'm turning my life back to you, God. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin, to make me brand new. I'm surrendering everything to you, God. I'm not trusting in anything or anyone else. Jesus, I'm trusting in you. Please save me. I give my life completely to you. If that's your prayer here today, would you just lift your hands real high right now and lock eyes with me? Just say, yep, that's me. Yeah, way to go there. And both of you over there, yes. And you in the back, yeah, yes. And right there, yes, both of you, yes. I'm saying yes with you. God's changing you and he's making you new. There, yeah, way to go. 
yes. Anyone else? I'm waiting for you. I don't want to miss you. Yeah, back there. Way to go. Way to go. And there, yeah. There, yes. And there, yes. Way to go. God's changing you. There, way to go. Yes. God's changing you right now. And so God, here we are. Again, all of us. Arms wide open, hearts laid bare. Saying that we're all in with you. And God, we're counting on you to do the miraculous. And yeah, we know, we, we got to show up, absolutely. But at the end of the day, it's about you showing up, God. And so, would you please, would you please come and would you please do something fantastic and special? You already have so many times over and over and over again. And we're going to ask you to do it here again. Please, God. You're God after all, and we trust you. With our whole lives, our whole eternities, we trust you.